Hello, and welcome to Why Sports, a podcast designed to highlight the value of athletics as a foundation for any career path. Through interviews with professionals across industries, we discuss the impact of being part of a team, competition, learning to fail, and how those lessons transcend athletics into the workplace. Join us as we explore the importance of sports as professional development while our guests share what they have learned throughout their career. I'm your host, Justin Klein. Welcome to Why Sports. We are joined in this episode by Adam Myron, originally of Sacramento, California, currently a public defender in Brooklyn. Adam, thank you for joining us. Appreciate having you here. Thank you for having me, Coach. Just so you know, that reference is to our old high school connection, which is El Camino High School in Sacramento, where I was the basketball coach and left after Adam's freshman year, unfortunately, and did not get to coach him, but we have always maintained a great relationship, and here we are. Adam, in what way has your background with athletics or in athletics helped shape your professional journey? It's been a huge, a huge factor in the road getting here, and even though I would have thought at some point you're waiting for it to fizzle out and no longer affect, hasn't happened. It, it's continued to fuel connections, networking, this term that scares a lot of people and scared me in law school and all these fancy rooms. Sports is always there. It's always a way to connect. And again, in the job, it still connects there. It's, it's been just a common thread throughout the whole way. And I hope continues on as long as it can. When you mention connections and networking, what do you mean by that? And how has your athletic background helped grow that aspect of your professional life? Well, I think there's something to be said for former athletes. And I guess if you had to boil it down to two things are coming to my mind, like the competitive spirit, especially something in my work, you're in an adversarial system in, in litigation. But also on top of that, outside of that realm is just teamwork knowing that there's something bigger than you it's your team and the goals of your team are much more important non-comparable to your own personal goals you'll meet people who have that same background and share those two foundational values and you'll like sniff each other out in some magical way i I could give you a million little examples of that one i'll just say is that the the dean of my law school was a soccer player we connected with that I ended up being his teacher's assistant. To this day, I'm a year and a half graduated out. I'll still, before all this COVID stuff, uh, he'll hit me up. He has an extra ticket. We go to Madison Square Garden and watch St. John's play. And we can talk about sports. And of course, we're talking about what's going on with the students, work, everything. That's awesome. If you could take us through how you ended up in law, and we were talking about this before the pod, but you originally were chasing basketball out of high school and that pivoted and you ended up working in the justice system. How did that happen? How did your eyes get open to the opportunity to be a lawyer? Let's hear that story and how that took you where you are now. Well, my road, as far as schools go, was junior college in California and then a division three school in Oregon. That was Linfield College, small liberal arts school. It's like 2,500 kids, a lot of athletes. And student athlete always, that ordering principle is very important. And you, my mom, all the good coaches I've had have always maintained student first. Mm -hmm. 
as far as my interests go, a lot of times athlete was first, but it, it, you can't have one without the other. Like student is first as far as procedure goes. Mm-hmm. You got you to at least get on the court with your report card. Mm-hmm. There was a switch in my personal interests in undergrad. Mm-hmm. I got hurt and my last cut, got cut short before my last season, so I only played three years. But the shift that honestly think happened before my injury even. So while basketball, in my mind, was still on the table, at least for another year, Mm-hmm. just being in an academic setting and I, I, I liked my school I had an amazing English teacher who wrote me in but just that the academic background from El Camino mm-hmm. being interested loving the classroom setting but having a good teacher you got to be in the classroom anyways you might as well pay attention mm-hmm. sure enough things start landing interests are peaked I start bouncing from this professor who sends me take this professor's class mm-hmm end up as an English major studying imperialism. She was big into feminist studies, took a feminist Mm -hmm. studies course with her, civil rights studies, and then it led to teaching, Mm -hmm. policy, worked at the DA's office in Oregon while I was at that school, crossed that one off the list, and then decided the other side was the way. But it was that junior year when I first got to undergrad. Mm -hmm. The classroom got to be a super nurturing environment in a way that piqued me the way that athletics always had. Mm-hmm. But to be honest, if, if athletics wasn't there, I'm not, I don't think I would have been like, I might not have been in the seat, honestly. Mm-hmm. That was the vehicle. Right. And that's from that, not that everybody has the same misfortune of your injury leading you back to Sacramento, where I think you told me you started working in a law office. Right. Injury happens, ACL, need to go back to Sacramento for insurance purposes and need to make money so friend's dad apply end up working as the as the file boy at a, a law firm in Sacramento which I would imagine in doing so allowed you to see some of the things that you were learning in those English classes right in front of your face as the same as being in the DA's office when you say oh I crossed that off the list right oh yeah this is civil law I have a ton of respect for what those people do it was medical malpractice a lot of crazy stuff great attorneys but i don't know if i'm those if i'm gonna work those hours i need to be passionate i'm not someone that could that can fake it i'm not saying they were but i would have had to if i had done that well i think that brings the idea that you mentioned earlier of the competitive spirit right and doing what you do in criminal defense there's almost this you're doing all your work in the office staying late not getting a lot of sleep practicing for the game right when you got to show up and and be ready and uh, the opponent is over there and and you're looking across the the bench per se to get ready and so how has that served you in what you do and are there any you you mentioned some things earlier that i'll come back to but are there any things that you just latch on to every day as you're going to the office or that you're in the courtroom setting how is that uh, do you reflect or do do the lessons you learn through sport show up 100%. First of all, we didn't talk about this before for your viewers, but this is a major plug for you unplanned, but the note in my office right above my computer, control the controllables, Mm -hmm. because so many things, especially in my job, they're so far beyond my reach, beyond my client's reach. There's like apparatuses at work that have kept us confounded for hundreds of years. And it's like, if, you, if I can't identify my opponent or I start looking or feeling like I'm in a haze, 
and I can't identify who I'm up against. Mm -hmm. You might have lost a fight before you step in the ring. So control the controllables. Like, what can you do? Like, identify how I'm going to impact this game. And, of course, it's, it's not a game, but as far as this analogy goes. Mm -hmm. and, and I also think that a lot of clients, especially you're out here in Brooklyn, we, we only represent people who cannot afford an attorney. It's indigent defense. That, of course, means that there is a economic background and ethnic makeup of who is in the courtroom. You look around, white people in suits, white people behind the bench, black and brown people who are in the back, who are marched out in handcuffs. And it's like, they really need someone who could fight. Like, you got to be able to fight. Like, are you someone who could be there in the fourth quarter? Like, that's something that comes back from sports. And I'm not saying you got, you got to be like a star player or anything to do this, but to know that preparation means that you're going to put yourself in the best position to compete, to win, mm -hmm. to do everything you can mm -hmm. to prove that you were prepared for that moment. And then the, and then the execution of that, like, can you show up? And in your case, right, the, this isn't really necessarily, uh, I don't have the right words for it, but the deck is stacked against you, right? If you're already in that situation, it's indigent defense, you're being charged with a crime, you, you may not win. You probably, your winning percentage probably isn't great just by nature of the job. And how do you control the controllable, right? How do you still get up every day and show up when you're having a tough go of it? Right. Um, and I, I guess the other thing that I, I didn't ask earlier, even when we were off camera, uh, but you did mention off camera that you spent a year teaching middle school and coaching. Tell me a little bit more about your background with athletics in addition to basketball. Was there ever anything else when you were younger, little league, things like that? Did you only coach basketball the year you were teaching or did they say, hey, Adam, uh, we need this job done as well and you're here and you're enthusiastic. Why don't you go do that? It was mainly basketball as far as what I was coaching, but through school I, I did like YMCA, just kind of everything, whatever the kids needed. Mm -hmm. Whether it's a coach, if I don't know a ton about the game, like I love sports, I'll learn that real quick. Mm -hmm. As far as playing at El Camino, it was tennis, volleyball, and basketball. Random. I love bowling. Like really any of these. If it's a game, I like it. Like, right. but all those is you know before that, before El Camino, it was everything: baseball, soccer, traveling, a whatever, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. My mom was so wonderful enough to drive me to whatever practice I would do. What was her take on getting you involved in sports at a young age? Was there, let's use it, was there an ulterior motive? Did mom and you ever have a conversation? It's like, yo, you are doing this because, and deal with it. And you can get to a place where you find something that you love, great, but you're going to go and this is what's going to happen. Did you guys ever have that conversation or was it just what happened? No, definitely. I mean, it was, she's, she really, I think a lot of parents say this, but man, she, truly live by it like give your kids you want your kids to have more than you had more opportunity than you had more everything mm -hmm. more love more just all of it mm -hmm. and she grew up in Iraq she came to America when she was 15 so she came during I think she came as like a freshman in high school and in Iraq she, being a woman growing up that society is so chauvinistic so oppressed and she was such a good athlete. She was so good at soccer. Like when she could sneak into the game, mm -hmm. like she had to wear a headdress and everything, but she was great, but mm -hmm. never had an opportunity, let alone for like a team sport. She had to sneak in to play the games. Mm -hmm. So she was like, oh, you show interest in sports. You want to do this? And I'm presented with the option to like, all I got to do is take you to practice. And there's all these team sports readily available. She was like, oh, do whatever you want. 
You mentioned earlier as well that working collectively within your defense group, you're still part of a team, right? You're all on the, working to help your client. And you mentioned that you each have a role in that defense and that if somebody doesn't necessarily do their job, it really could go against you. And that's similar in athletics, right? So how, do you, how have you seen those ideas? And we can go through your whole career, right? You played a certain role each part of your high school basketball career at you know, the junior college, you played a certain role. At the four year, you played a certain role. After your injury, you had a certain role. And each of those needed a, a different skill set, I would imagine, both physically and spiritually, uh, emotionally, socially. How do you see that played out in your day-to-day, both when you were uh, working uh, at, at some odd jobs during the college years, when you were teaching, and, and now as a lawyer? It's just like directly the, the skill is adaptability. You got to be a Swiss Army knife, I think, in, in today's workforce, because it seems like the workforce is just this like mix and match game, shifting tiles. You have to prove that you're you're ready to adapt, even if it's just in your field. What's demanded of your field in the rapid technization of, of everything in our lives? How can you remain a, a good employee? How can you remain mentally, socially, physically, all those things? How can you be ready to be an imp- a positive impact on the game, a positive impact for your employers? Mm-hmm. Well, I just say the adaptability in that is to adapt to not only your role, sports, it's I'm the best player at this school, I'm the bench player at this school, mm-hmm. I'm in at the last second of the game, at this school, I'm supporting the players who are in at the last of this school. In work, it's that my client, my boss, whoever needs me to step up, I need to be someone who's going to really carry a heavy load. Or maybe what's needed is for me to shrink my head, realize that there's something bigger than me. There's a bunch of other people who I need to lift up. And it's time for me to go down, minimize myself, because this is that time where I'm supporting the rest of the people who are on the court. And those are lessons you learned competing. Oh, yeah. Other than that, I think we're only incentivized me, me, me. Without the team, we're increasingly individualistic. It's hard. I think it really is. It's hard to think beyond me because everything tells us just think about you. Do what's best for you, your growth, your success. Mm -hmm. Very little we Mm -hmm. training for us. Yeah. As the athletic director of the school, I talk often about sports are a vehicle to teach leadership and for you to learn to be part of something bigger than yourself, which you mentioned earlier. And it sounds like that's been a big part of your adaptability. In regards to ending up in New York versus staying on the West Coast, that decision was prompted by a disappointment in regards to you know, what you were hoping for. And ultimately, it seems like it's paid tremendous dividends. But I'm curious in what ways do disappointments show up right in your adult life that you can look back and into your uh, involvement with sports and athletics earlier in learning how to deal with those. I think one thing, I don't know how many East coast viewers you're going to have. So I'll, I'll, I'll very briefly explain this phenomenon in New York city, the New York city day 
where the city just seems to beat you up. I'm keeping it as PG as possible. It's kicking your butt. From the morning to the night, everything happened to go wrong. Your train was delayed. Somebody's yelling at you on the subway to the office. Something horrible happens at the office, but just on and on. And it's like, first of all, is you have to be ready to try to stop that day at any point you could, or at least put yourself in the best position to put to turn it into a day where you did the best you could. And at, and at the very least, be ready to wipe that one, go to the next day and not let it turn over and not let it get you down because the New York City day could turn into the New York City week or month when it's like, yeah, all this one's a little basketball centric, but I'm sure you could apply it to many sports. Like, are you the shooter that misses one shot and then the next nine are off because up here you're already broken down? Mm-hmm. Say like, no. What Dingman, our beloved coach, rest mm-hmm. his soul from El Camino, next play. Mm-hmm. His next play. Wipe that next play because if you let any negativity from your past influence your future, no one impacted that. No one brought that negativity but you. Mm-hmm. Why? For what? And I think that's the lesson that sport teaches. You don't have time to, to boohoo and dwell and wish it were better and think about, well, I got another week until my next test, or I don't get another opportunity to interview for a job for another two weeks. It's like, no, the ball is going the other way in basketball, or you're serving again in tennis, right, or volleyball that you mentioned. Are there any lessons that you've taken with you from tennis and volleyball, which you did, uh, let's just call it much more recreationally than as your, your passion? How has that played out in your day-to-day or just along your path? Well, like you said, they weren't my love. Basketball was my love. That was everything. Mm-hmm. Very important. Tennis and volleyball were most likely so I could probably get out of conditioning with you and, and Coach Tony or whoever. <laughs> but I, I really enjoyed those games. But it, it was just for fun. And I think me being the way I am and just pretty naturally an undisciplined person, honestly. Yep. And sports aside, Mm-hmm. God knows what it would have been like. Mm-hmm. But those sports, I think, where I'm only doing it for fun, and I was good at them, and they, they came pretty easy, and I had friends on the team, whatever. There were times where I, I think my lackadaisical approach to the competition mm-hmm. borderlined on disrespect. In tennis, I'm the guy. I'm like, miss a serve, and if I'm cursing or something, I'm like, whatever, this isn't basketball season's in a couple months. I started realizing that people who I can create connections with and build a trust, my coaches, my teammates, who respect me because of what I'm bringing to the table as far as my hard work, my effort. Mm -hmm. If I start disrespecting this game, just because I'm not finding it as important as this other competition that I hold so dearly, Mm -hmm. the way I'm treating this game disrespects how they feel about this game. Mm -hmm. And even in an individualistic sport like tennis, Mm -hmm. it's like that disrespect will paint you in a light that, I don't want people thinking of me as someone who's going to disrespect this competition just because it's not the forefront of my focus. Mm-hmm. I was like, you know what, if I'm going to be here, if I'm going to put on the jersey, I'm going to do my best because there, there's no reason not to. And, and for me to take a playoff or to let my emotions get the best of me, mm-hmm. it's just weakness coming out. And there's no need for that. I'm definitely not benefiting from it. Mm-hmm. It's just me. It, it's like a emotional, physical venting. Mm-hmm. And, It's not helping nothing. Right. And in a sport like tennis, which like golf is self-refereed for the most part, unless there's, you got to call a judge over, but even at the highest level, it it becomes a gentleman's game or there's a certain way you're supposed to comport yourself. Right. Uh, I would imagine uh, you use the word discipline without sports, without basketball. I can't imagine what it would be like, but how does the discipline of having to show up every day, 
whether you feel good or not. And you have to show up for your teammates or in a sport like, like tennis, I can't behave by cursing or hitting the ball over the fence because it's not acceptable in that game. How do those lessons translate? Is, do you have any examples of specifics along your career where you can you know, point to things like that where discipline mattered, preparation mattered, or you had to know the rules and live within them because if not, negative things were going to happen? 100%. There's something to be said for the, the Tim Duncan face. All the emotion can be brewing inside. Mm-hmm. But it's like if, if, you're, if your actions in the competition or in the job or whatever task you're undertaking can't speak for themselves, the emotion just coming out verbally or in, in body language, mm-hmm. that's not an appropriate expression. A lot of the times, my example, currently in the last year and definitely going forward is when I'm in front of a judge and I'm getting a, a judge's discretion in, in my line of work has an insane amount of effect on these people's lives. And I'm their representative. It's me and them against the government, law enforcement, police, and a lot of times this judge. When it was like the referee, right? Yeah, supposed to be. And a lot of times is, but sometimes it, it feels like they're on the other team. But when that ruling comes down, there comes a time mm-hmm. where there's nothing you can do about it. Mm-hmm. I see people like stamp their feet and throw fits. Mm-hmm. And it's just like... It's like complaining about the call. It just doesn't do it. Like mm-hmm. the, the Tim Duncan version of that mm-hmm. is I go back to my office, I get on the computer, I write my appeal. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm appealing to the next higher judge. It's all done in my motion work. It, right. or it, it, it's my advocacy or my litigation going forward. Right. Me throwing a fit and, and name calling, pointing fingers in the courtroom, that's doing nothing. But it's all it does is challenge my professional accountability. Right. And it's like if I, that, I could have thrown the racket, I could have, judge you Uh that's not helping anybody it's certainly not helping the the person i'm fighting for the team right there right and those are all lessons though that you probably learned at an early age by getting the correction from your coach or the referee or the the other player across the net in tennis or whomever but the point is you were allowed to i have the shirt on do fail repeat you were allowed to do that as a kid in sports which then you're not going into the judge and behaving like you, some of the people that you see around you. Oh, yeah. Many fail repeat, fail repeats. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I'm not saying they're done. They, they, there may very well, there certainly will be times that, oh, yeah. that, that it pops up again. But it's nice to bump against the wall when I'm in school and, and it's a game. It truly is just a game. Because yeah. when it's not a game and you will fail again, but mm-hmm. hopefully you learn from your past failures and I'd like to believe I have. We'll see. <laughs> so you mentioned control the controllables early, which while I was there was a mantra, especially trying to deal with, I think we had some hotheads at that time and we were always trying to keep everybody in line and say, hey, stop worrying about this. Stop worrying about that. Let's just focus on being the best version of yourself. And, and ultimately that's going to help us be the best version of, of our team. Mm. And, and so that's one thing you've taken away. Are there other lessons that you've relied on most as you've navigated your career that are not even necessarily uh, front of mind, but, you know, I had my 10-year anniversary at the school, and they do this celebration where somebody, one of your colleagues, speaks about you in front of the rest of the faculty. And my good buddy put this whole video together of all these climoisms that were, the entire video was just the string of these things that I say repeatedly that I don't even realize I say them, but it's, it's just the go-to bag. So are there things like that or lessons that you just remind yourself? And I tell our kids now, I didn't have this in the toolbox when I was with you guys, but 
We talk about two clap and I stole it from PGC where something goes bad. It's like, you got one second, like you frustrated. And then, all right, now you got to energize and go the other direction, right? Or talking to referees before the game, going up, introducing yourself. Hey, I'm Adam. What's your name? Oh, Jim, nice to meet you. Is there anything you need? Thank you for coming out tonight. Doing things like that, uh, which I didn't have in the toolbox back then. But, you know, what are the things that you've learned or that you've taken with you from your various coaches, your various stops, your dean at the law school, whatever it might be, that you rely on? A lot. There's, it's, I'm going through like a, a distillation process right now in my mind because it, it's hard to really synthesize them. I think two, two kind of principles or, or lessons, I'll, I'll probably be able to name them better as they come out, but that come to mind are, one thing I always want, I want my, I really do want the, respect of my opponent like i i want to i want to bust your butt that's in new york city we say it a little different but i'll say here i want to bust your butt i want to win but i want my opponent to respect me i want to be the opponent that you would want to face me again like you would want to see me in competition again Mm -hmm. and and i would want to see you like because a lot of times i feel like what's on the other side could very well be someone that's on your team, whether that's employment, you switch jobs, something happens in the world where all of a sudden they're next to you. They're no longer across from you. Mm-hmm. And I think the, that's played out so much in how basketball has served me beyond like playing years. Like when I went to St. John's law, mm-hmm. found myself in the recreation center, stressing, like I got a million books, a million pages to read and I'm blowing off steam, and then it turned into me meeting these guys, and then I played for the St. John's Club basketball team, and they were an amazing group. They're all undergrads, so I'm like mm-hmm. three, four years older than these guys. Mm-hmm. Turned into some of the best friends I made there, and then now I'm in Brooklyn. I'm working downtown. I take the train, but right up here is some great courts that have you know, amazing basketball, and that's where, I, that's where I met my community. And This community, we, we talked a little bit about this earlier, but especially in New York City, the economic backgrounds and the gentrification it, it's and we don't no longer live in a wave at your neighbor society and especially in a lot of metropolitan areas mm-hmm. when i'm playing at the park and I, and my opponent respects me and we we, we can still do this mm-hmm. and, and it would translate to any sport the mm-hmm. soccer that's going on in the field the bas- the handball mm-hmm. is huge out here whatever it is tennis court mm-hmm. when you respect your opponent you talk after you can talk about the competition you can talk about life and that leads to the guy sooner or later, name, number, you continue competing together. And that's like, I think that's the, the biggest way I've interacted with my community in New York City. In Jamaica, Queens, mm-hmm. here in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, mm-hmm. basketball was, I told you this before, the universal language that allowed me to speak to people that a lot of times there's, there may not be anything else that will relate us. Like mm-hmm. our, our backgrounds, our family, our language. Mm-hmm. Like our verbal language might not let us connect, but if I have this competition and we both know how to play this game and these, we understand these rules together, mm-hmm. this ball or this whatever it is mm-hmm. brings us into this arena that kind of force us to get to know each other formally, informally, and then it leads to some type of social interaction. That's like the most beautiful way to, mm-hmm. that's better than, than this type of meeting mm-hmm. or this type of meeting, whatever. Nothing is like when we're face-to-face and we just shared a competition together. This one might be dangerous, but w- w- when you're working and in your profession, uh, w- which there's, it's high stakes, right? You're, it's criminal defense, right? People's lives are on the line, be it 
felonies or misdemeanors or whatever. It's life-changing stuff. And, you know, if you go back to your pre-law career or any of the jobs that you've held or any of the going through school and building networking relationships or being in class, whatever you want to apply this to. Do you find that you, you can easily identify people that don't have a background in team-based activities in regards to when you come across them or you're, you're asked to partner with them on something or they're sitting across the table However you want to interpret that question, I'm just curious based on how you've described the camaraderie and the foundation of relationships that you build based on sport, if there's, you know, an, an opposite of that where people don't have that skill set. Yeah, there definitely is. And I think as it was asked delicately, I think it should be answered delicately because it could be seen to just, because I think my views are going to be predominantly negative. There's, there may be positives. I just, mm-hmm. I can't really identify them, honestly. Mm-hmm. And as you can imagine, and for people listening, maybe they can imagine or not, but without that team building or sharing a common goal that's beyond you, mm-hmm. again, I think I said this earlier, we're so, especially in today's society and the way our interaction in our economy, capitalism, whatever it is to support your family, to support yourself, it's I-based. Mm-hmm. My success is my own. Very rarely, I think, is it shared or is my efforts to achieve a success that affects someone beyond me or my immediate family. Mm-hmm. And so when people, I think particularly in work, not just in my field, but mm-hmm. restaurant jobs, whatever, from undergrad, just the workforce, people who haven't experienced team, who haven't experienced we, they're just I-based. I think things are I. And I don't mean to say that just because they didn't play sports makes them an I person, because I honestly think by programming, I'm an I person. Very often, I would revert back to I I points, my attention or or speaking in things that affect me, because I think that could be more likely how I'm wired, certainly how I'm socialized. But what sport did to reprogram me that I think would be lacking had I not had it. And for those who, who haven't is that you've got, we is bigger. Like it's gotta be we first. And if we're put on a task and I've played team sports and I've experienced that and you haven't, we might have different goals. My goal might be for you and I to achieve a, your goal might be for you and not me to achieve B because a is for we and B is for you. So if we're working for two separate things, we might as well not be on the same team because we're not even going in the same direction. And I think that shows up. I'm trying to think of a job. It didn't show up. Restaurant. Busboy isn't doing everything because he's tired and he thinks he deserves a break. But waiters out there needs a new table. You got different goals. One is for me. One is for we. I think it applied to just about every job. Well, it's interesting. The thing that came to front of mind for me while you were talking about that was definitely the, the we component and the shared mission and vision and how you work together towards a goal. What role do you play in that? Not everyone can be a star, but you start, you can star in your role, like all the cliches that, you know, I've probably thrown at you over your life. But I think resiliency was also a big part of what I don't think came up but I've been thinking about as I look around and in, in the interactions I have and in a time like COVID, right? What, what's your resiliency like if 
you know, you, you didn't have all of those failures in the same way in which you experienced them through athletics in a safe environment where at the end of the game, you shake hands and you, and you move on. You yeah. High five the other person. Thanks for playing. I really appreciate you. And you move on. <laughs> Here's another loaded question for you. And this just came up. It has nothing to do with that, but you have been very active in, I don't want to call it politics per se, because it's not politically driven in your mind or, or in the reality of your actions, but in the protests that are going on, the job that you do, where you live, how would you say sports has prepared you for that environment, which can often be combustible? It can be, I don't want to necessarily call it violent, but definitely not nonviolent. Learning, learning how to run fast. <laughs> <laughs> no, you said it wasn't related, but you know it is. It, it's all about we. It's like, if I know something's not right for me, anyone could say I'd want to change it for me because eyes easy. We're all born with eye. If something's not right for him and I can see that, but knowing that I'd have to do something and put forth effort, work, whatever to change things for him. And it won't affect me at all. My status of privilege might actually go down. If I don't know we, if I don't know the we concept, I wouldn't be that driven to do that because why make things for me worse? Or, or, or if, if they're going to stay neutral and it's only for him, why, makes, why waste my time and energy? Because if, it's, if I don't believe in we, then it truly is a waste. But coming from a mother who emigrated from the Middle East, growing up in 9-11 and seeing family who gets stopped at the airport when no one else gets stopped and the way Middle Eastern kids are treated and being, having a, a white father so I don't share any. I, I have all the privilege in the world. I have everything. I have white skin that doesn't get me teased, doesn't get me stopped at the airport. I have the white name that makes sure everything clears through just fine, doesn't lead to, you know, probable cause for nothing. But I have the stories of my mom, and I, she's championed me in so many ways. I get to mention her in my cover letters. That's everything. It really is it all. But my family doesn't have all that. My family a lot of times looks different than me, don't have the same, like, the presenting white privilege for a lot of my family members. And it's like, I didn't have to be too smart or, or too compassionate, because I'm not either of those, to realize that things aren't fair for this group of people. They just don't have any of my family members, so I might care a little more. But I think there's, a, there's an aspect to knowing when, seeing when things aren't right early on, and this being like, having a personal interaction with unfairness. And while I think a lot of this unfairness towards my people was a new American phenomenon. You don't. You also don't have to be smart or compassionate to see how black people in this country are treated so disparagingly and the things that they face. It's. It wouldn't be fair to call it a hurdle. It's a mountain that has been 400 years long, and so many of these stories. I just read a wonderful book there, Native American author, the Native American story. It's like things just aren't fair. And it's like, if, if I understand we, if I'm going to talk to you on this podcast about understanding we, and that there's something bigger than me, and that it's not all about just I, my safety, but it's about my brother and my sister's safety. So I just wonder how you could not engage with that. Because if you are going to say you believe in that, then it's not right to let these things keep happening to these people. Because then you're going to see yourself turn into part of the problem. Right. And you could almost say, based on that description, that 
but you have an obligation to something bigger than yourself. And these are your teammates and the, you may not even know them, but your mission and your vision and the values that you hold make their movement part of your own belief system. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Um, you talked about fair a lot and I think that's framed really early for us as athletes, right? It's mm-hmm. not fair. So-and-so is playing more. The coach likes him. Coach has favorites, whatever you want to say. And again, things that I've stolen from other people is, yeah, the coach has favorites and you can be a favorite if you want. There are certain things you have to do in regards to the, whatever is important to said coach showing up early working harder than everyone, right? It's not even about being a good player. Like most of my favorite players weren't even necessarily the kids that played a lot. It has nothing to do with that. And the idea of fair, and it's like fair is not equal, right? How you were coached may be very different than how the guy sitting next to you on the seat was coached because they needed different things. And I think that's a very interesting thing to bring into the equation because it is, again, you can frame this however you want, but it's mirrored in those early experiences. And the earlier you have an opportunity to get right with that and figure out how you want to control your response to that probably really impacts, let's use the word success that you have as you go through life. However you define that in your current situation, what that's going to look like in five years. But Mm. um, I think based on your description, that's a big part of what you learned and how to encounter those obstacles. Yeah. And I think from my personal experience, being someone, especially early on, who wanted to be coach's favorite, who wanted to be the best, who wanted to play the most, score the most, whatever, you start to realize on different teams, I'm not always going to be the, the top of this category, top of every whatever. But if I'm trying as hard as I can, this is where the sport of, of any sport would play in. If I'm trying as hard as I can to be that, mm-hmm. the effort, the, the work ethic, the late nights, being in the gym late. Mm-hmm the running, the things I don't want to do, the weightlifting, if I'm doing all that to achieve that, mm-hmm. and then I don't, I'm still not coach's favorite. I didn't achieve my goal. The only thing I didn't get was affirmation. The only thing I didn't get was the pat on the butt from coach. Mm-hmm. But I still got all the progression and personal success from being in the gym late, from running the extra mile, from lifting weights. Mm-hmm. And at first, you won't I, I didn't get that in high school. Even though I didn't get the affirmation, mm-hmm. I succeeded. I, I didn't get that then. Right. But later on, you start to see affirmation is not handed out that much in adult life. This workforce is not going to affirm you many times. Your bosses, just like your coach, the coach can't go pat everyone on the back, can't tell everyone they're their favorite, they won't believe them. Mm-hmm. It's even less in the workforce. And as soon as you can keep working towards your own personal growth and you don't need the affirmation because of the real success was in the gains you made mm-hmm. you're perfect because most people will do that and then the affir- the lack of affirmation crushes them right and then they start they, they do this they, they march up the mountain affirmation isn't there at the top and they just do this like slow tumble down of like self-pity and mm-hmm. i didn't get it i'm not the best i didn't get the promotion sports will tell you don't worry about that you already got your success mm-hmm. you don't need that affirmation And that just allows you to keep going further up the mountain. Mm -hmm. Your sights will be set so much further ahead. Yeah, I love that analogy. Hadn't thought about that as we were discussing it, but it's it's something that I struggle with as a parent. I struggle with as a leader and a boss in regards to knowing I'm not the king of the attaboy and that I'm constantly looking to self-improve, which then makes my 
vision very targeted on areas of growth for other people that I'm offering up as here's an opportunity to grow that usually is received as criticism. So it's an area of growth and, and something that in leadership, you, you need to find ways to do that. You need to figure out how to give the attaboys that are earned or girls. Hey, great job. Super yes. proud of you. You crushed that. That's something that I think just as a leader and figuring out how to coach and how, how to get better at that is similar to your path there. Well, Adam, this has been awesome. Uh, we'll definitely have to come back and do a round two, talk about what happens over the next few months and the hot takes that you have on that. And we were joking uh, off video beforehand about how much fun I've had following your Twitter feed. And I was reading it to my daughter tonight to, to tell her, hey, you'd really like this guy. Where can people find you if they want to follow you on Twitter? I think it would have an underscore. I got to look now. These kids these days and their, their tags right from memory. Twitter, Adam Myron, A-D-A-M underscore M-Y-R-E-N. Great. We'll see. Hopefully we'll get you some followers and you can continue to, to uh, humor us with and, and enlighten us. We were talking about offline, but some of the things you say are very thought provoking. So they appreciate you taking the time. And this was very gracious of you to, to do the beta test on this thing. Love it. Anytime, man. Great. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening. If you found this valuable, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And give Y Sports and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support.